It takes something mighty special to start a nonprofit. A level of passion that basically pulses through your veins. I think it's kind of heroic. In 1990, that's what Kevin Jennings did. The organization he founded, Glisten, has been remarkably successful, and he claims as his biggest accomplishment that when he left after 18 years, quote, nobody missed me, end quote. It's not true, but it's a good line. Kevin managed what few founders can. He built an organization to last. We have something in the nonprofit sector called founder syndrome. There are founders who bristle at this implied pathology, and yet I find it pandemic. Founders who can't let go. Boards who can't let founders go. How did Kevin succeed? Today, Kevin tells us. He talks about starting a nonprofit as, quote, a feat of astounding stupidity, end quote. He uses a single word to describe his credentials to run a nonprofit in 1990. He talks about board building and uses the unique term, hiring them. And he shares the secret sauce, how to hire your successor, set her up to succeed. So there's just simply no question who the board should hire. Kevin has moved on to New Horizons. No, no surprise there. Since 2012, Kevin has been the executive director of the Arcus Foundation, a leading global foundation supporting efforts to create a world where human beings live in harmony with each other and the natural world. Prior to Arcus, Kevin served as the Assistant Deputy Secretary of Education in the Obama administration, and it was his work as an openly gay high school teacher that led him to start the nation's first gay-straight alliance, and from there to the founding of GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, a nonprofit that strives to assure that each member of every school community is valued and respected, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity expression. Poor Kevin just has three degrees, a bachelor's from Harvard, a master's in education from Teachers College at Columbia, and an MBA from the Stern School at NYU. My sincere apologies for bringing such an underachiever to you this week. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Kevin Jennings, I am so delighted to have you with us today to share some of our your insights on this particular topic with us. So, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Your blog is something I recommend routinely to new executive directors as the single best blog on nonprofit management I know of. So to be able to contribute to it makes me very excited. Nice. Thank you. Um, So a year or so back, I interviewed you for a blog post that I wrote about what the nonprofit sector has dubbed founders syndrome. So this is a condition that befalls an organization when a founder's own identity becomes so intertwined with the organization, the founder simply can't let go. The comments on that blog post went on for days. I clearly struck a nerve and it confirmed my belief that your success story is both an anomaly and also really important for people to hear about both the founders that are out there, the staff who work for founders and the boards trying to make the right decisions on behalf of the organization. Now, in 1990, uh, we talked about this just a few minutes ago, the, or- the organization you started was called GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, in 1990. Tell me a little bit about how you got started. I started GLSEN really because there was this enormous need, which I was perceiving because other teachers from other schools were calling me. I was a teacher, a uh, high school history teacher in Concord, Massachusetts, 
where we had started the first gay-straight alliance in the country, and people were asking, how did you do that? How are you doing this work? And, and, how, did they, and how did they find you, Kevin? Did, was it the press from the first gay-straight alliance? No, there was no press. It was really interesting. I, and this is back before the Internet. I'm not quite sure how anybody found me. You know, <laughs> I, I sort of think of those Russian dissidents who somehow created an underground during the bad days of the Soviet Union. Right. You know, um, people would just, who I'd never heard of, would call me and say, oh, I'm at Brookline High School. I'm at Phillips Academy. I'm at, you know, Middlesex School, whatever. And say, can you come and talk at our school? And I began to realize there was a need to organize these folks. And help them network with each other and to have an organization that would channel all of this passion and all of this momentum. And that's why I created Glisten was really to meet that need. And so where'd the money come from, Kevin? Well, at the beginning, there was no money. In retrospect, uh, it was a feat of astounding stupidity because I left my teaching job before we had raised a single dime. And I do not come from a family with any resources, so I had no safety net of any kind. And at our second board meeting, I remember coming into the meeting and being terrified that I was going to have to tell the board that we had no money. And one of the board members said, we've gotten an anonymous donor has given me a $25,000 check. Wow. Turned out, I found out many years later, it was a member of the organization who was well known to me, who I did not know had inherited wealth. And he saw what we were doing and stepped forward with that first check, which basically paid my salary for the first year during which time I was able to organize the teachers and students that we were working with into a coherent organization and build a funding case to approach donors, both individual and institutional. All right. So take your time with this question, Kevin. Tell me about your long list of credentials that qualified you to be an executive director. None. (laughs) Um, I had no experience in management no experience with finance, no experience with fundraising. The only qualification I have, which I think is probably true of many founders, is that I was deeply passionate about the cause. I had no real organizational leadership experience of any kind, uh, to the point where on our balance sheet, we had this thing called retained earnings, and it kept getting bigger and bigger. And I was terrified that the IRS was retaining all of our money. Oh, my gosh, that's so funny. I was like, all our money's getting retained. Um, And I finally approached a friend of mine who was an accountant. I said, why is our money being retained by the government? He goes, no, that's the amount of money you're retaining. Uh, That's the amount of money you have, which I didn't understand. So, you know, I really was clueless. Board. How did you build a board? I was very fortunate in that. Um, uh, an experienced school administrator who was deeply passionate about what we wanted to do called me around this time and said, if I can ever be of any help, please let me know. And I said, why don't you be our board chair? He was about 25, 30 years older than me, had worked extensively with boards of directors um, at uh, the private school he ran as well as nonprofits he'd been involved in. And so he was really my guide and my mentor in terms of thinking about how to develop a board. Wow. Because that's um, typically, typically, a founder basically kind of makes phone calls and gets pals, buddies, friends, friends of friends to be on their boards. Were you more intentional than that because of this individual? I think a little more intentional, but I don't want to make it over-dramatize it. You always start off with your board with friends of friends. Right. Um, that's simply you, you work your network, and that's how we 
built our original board. And it was very small at first. We started with just a board of five. And it's important to not beat yourself up about that. You know, you got to ask somebody and the people you're most likely to ask are the people you know. Totally. I think that I think the the challenge comes later on when the board has to evolve into something else. Right. Absolutely. And I went to a great workshop once early in my time with Glisten in which the facilitator said, raise your hand if you've ever hired somebody, a staff person. Well, raised our hands because we were executive directors. And then she said, okay, raise your hand if you hire board members. And nobody raised their hand. She goes, that's your first mistake. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, they may be volunteers, but they're there to do a job. And if you don't know what job they're there to do, they will either disengage because they don't know what to do, or they'll make up some job for themselves, which, believe you me, you will not want. Uh, So it was really important that you approach your board recruitment just as seriously and just as thoroughly as you would hiring a staff person. Because in the end, you are hiring people to do a job for you. That feels really important, really important. I, um, I get more work than I wish that I would in the, in the sector of really teaching boards what their roles and responsibilities are, transforming boards into engaged boards. And I think much of it comes, at the heart of it, comes from how you recruit. I think you're absolutely right. So let's get the so let's get the chronology right. One of the reasons I wanted you to talk about the history is that the staff members who experience founders syndrome today out in the universe often don't really take time to really appreciate the fact that the founder built something really remarkable. And so you started with this $25,000 anonymous gift. And when did you leave the organization and tell me about its size? budget size, staff size, and maybe something, a little something about impact. Sure. Well, uh, in 1990, when I founded Glisten, it was an all-volunteer organization, and there were probably five or six gay straight alliance student clubs in the entire country. In 1994 was when I left my teaching job. We got the $25,000 check, and I became the first full-time employee, and I served as the paid executive director for 14 years leaving in 2008. By the time we left, there were over 5,000 high schools with gay straight alliances around America. When we started, there was one lonely state, Wisconsin, that protected students from bullying and discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. When I left in 2008, 12 states uh, whose total population comprised about 30% of all American students had such laws. So we were able to achieve some real progress, both in terms of changing policies and also putting in place programs that make schools better. That's a lot to be proud of. I'm enormously proud of it. But honestly, when people ask me what I'm proudest of about Glisten, and I mean what I'm about to say sincerely, even though it sounds a little snarky, I say the fact that I left eight years ago and nobody misses me. So how far before announcing that you were going to leave did you actually decide you were going to? It was actually fairly quick, the decision between deciding I was going to leave and announcing. It was just a matter of weeks. But the consideration about leaving took place over a much longer period of time. And two things really tipped me into deciding to leave. First of all, I took a sabbatical. And during that sabbatical, Glisten thrived under the leadership of my deputy executive director, today the executive director, Eliza Byard. And I realized that we had succeeded in building something that was not dependent on me anymore. 
And number two, frankly, um, I got this wonderful award for the National Association of Secondary School Principals, which is a very prestigious, very well-respected mainstream education organization for my distinguished service to American education. And I was 44. And I thought, I'm getting lifetime achievement awards, and I'm 44. Um, and that just it sort of felt to me like two things. First of all, the organization was solid. And it didn't right. need me. And number two, I had probably contributed most of what I was ever going to contribute, and that any additional contributions I made from that day forward were probably going to be more incremental in nature. And I thought, this is the right time to leave. I've probably contributed 95% of the value I'm going to contribute to this organization, and the organization is thriving, so it's time to step away and let the organization move forward under a new leader. Did you... Did I hear in that uh, I was only 44 uh, kind of uh, an ambition that there were other things you wanted to do or other things you believed were out there waiting for you? There's definitely an element of that, but there's also an element of uh, I couldn't see myself continuing to do the work that I was doing for another 20, 25 years. Right. Um, That I felt that I also personally had learned probably 95% of what I was going to learn from this job. And to me, when I mentor young people, and I do run a mentorship program today, I always say the time to leave a job is when you feel like you're no longer learning. And I felt that I had learned most of what I was ever going to learn running Glisten after 18 years, and that it was time to, to move on. So there's this this thing, right? The, you can't live with a founder, can't live without a founder. You hear it, right? Oh, my gosh, the founder is leaving. What are we going to do? And then you have the, oh, my gosh, I wish the founder would just go away and let us do our jobs. <laughs> so what do you feel like you did right? Well, first of all, I mentioned earlier that I had a wonderful mentor and our first board president, Charlie Todd. And he, from the beginning, baked in the idea of succession planning. You know, we used to call it the hit-by-a-bus syndrome, which, you know, (laughs) is exactly what it sounds like. What would happen to Glisten if I was hit by a bus? So from the beginning, we were thinking about how do we build something that's bigger than me? And one of the things we did settle on early on was a strong and empowered board of directors, that the board had to have a sense of ownership of the organization. And so from the beginning, the board was empowered, and we deliberately built a very strong board that wasn't afraid to challenge me, even though I was the founder. The second thing I did was I created the deputy executive director position in 2001 and brought on board an absolutely brilliant woman, Eliza Byard, who I mentioned earlier, to take that position. And I hired Eliza because she was really good at everything I was not any good at. Uh, She was very methodical, very analytical. Uh, very systems-oriented, and I'm kind of the opposite. I'm very um, expressive, and I'm much more comfortable giving speeches than reading spreadsheets. And so I realized that I needed to bring on board somebody whose skill set complemented mine and could help build the institution that we wanted to build. And then the third thing I think I did right was I made sure that Eliza had enormous exposure to the board, Uh, The board knew her extremely well uh, after seven years. And also, I worked really hard to make sure that our donors had exposure to the board and to Eliza. We did not want the donors to think that I was Glisten. 
So whenever it was possible, we would have board members reach out to develop relationships with donors. Eliza would come with me to meetings. We would work very, very hard to make sure that there was not a single point of contact between a donor and the organization, but instead there was a web of relationships. So we had, we'd been doing all those things for years, which you should just be doing, period. Um, whether you're thinking of leaving now or in five or in 10 years, you should be doing those things now. So by the time it came to make the decision to leave, we sort of had everything already in place. And that's why I was able to make the decision very quickly. We didn't have to think, oh my God, the donors only know me, or oh my God, we need to build a strong board of directors, or oh my God, we need a strong number two person. We had already done all those things because from day one at Glisten, we were thinking, the hit-by-a-bus scenario, and we were planning for that day should it ever happen. Um, well, I'm really glad that you have not gotten hit by a bus, and I'm also really glad that what I'm hearing again is that it was sort of baked into the DNA of Glisten from the beginning that the organization was going to, had a commitment to itself, to the students, to its donors, to sustain and grow beyond what you were able to do as the leader there, which is um, not typically the case. So we're, we're talking to Kevin Jennings. He is currently the executive director of the Arcus Foundation, a leading global foundation supporting efforts to create a world where human beings live in harmony with each other and the natural world. You can learn more about Kevin and the foundation at www.arcusfoundation, that's A-R-C-U-S foundation.org. That is his current job, but today we are talking to him in his role as the founder and leader of the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, which he founded in 1990 and left in 2008. So back to the conversation about the deputy executive director. It is more common than not that the deputy executive director hired has very different skills from the person the board is accustomed to as a leader. Was that an obstacle with Eliza? I mean, I know Eliza as well, and I know that she's all the things you said she is. But usually the inside person is not the obvious choice. Well, I think that is one of the biggest mistakes nonprofits make. And you'll see very, very few major corporations that hire an unknown CEO from outside the corporation. Usually somebody is groomed and trained and brought up very systematically through the system. And I feel very strongly that nonprofits, if they're big enough, should really consider developing leadership within the organization. I don't understand, frankly, this culture that many boards have that we have to go out and find some outsider because that just creates so many obstacles. Uh, the person has to take time to learn the organization, etc. That may be appropriate if the organization is in crisis or if things are not going well. Right. Well, things are going well, which they were at Glisten. You know, we had grown to from a $25,000 budget in 1994 to a $7 million budget in 2008 with over 50 staff in offices in New York, Washington, and Los Angeles. So I think that if things are going well, I would strongly urge a board to consider an internal candidate. That being said, our board did choose to go through a national search. That was going to be my next question. They hired a search firm, and they um, went through a several-month process in which many candidates other than Eliza were considered. And they came to, thankfully to me, to what I thought was the logical conclusion from day one, which was Eliza was the best person. 
And at the time, I was very frustrated by that, although I kept my mouth shut, because I felt, why are we spending all this money and all this time on this search? And now I realize it was smart because it convinced the board that Eliza was indeed the right person. They actually owned the decision then, didn't they? Right, rather than Kevin appointing his buddy to be the ED. It was the board came to the conclusion, yes, this person is the right person to be our executive director. So I would say, even though I've just advocated really strongly for considering internal candidates, that there is some value through going through a formal search process because it also gives some legitimacy if the internal candidate is chosen. It doesn't look like a done deal was done on behalf of the favorite but instead the person won the job in a fair and open competition, which inspires both staff and donors to have more confidence in that person. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about you and your continuing role with the organization. And one of the things that I find uh, challenging is that boards are so frantic about losing their founder, they will come up with every possible permutation and combination of ideas to hold on to you as tightly as they possibly can. And believe me, I have seen everything from the obvious, which is a board member, to a board chair. I've seen a new ED come in and the the founder is actually on staff in some kind of a political strategist role. There is, uh, boards uh, really come up with the most remarkable (laughs) and creative scenarios. Tell me about your board here. They must have tried to figure out a way to hang on to you and keep you as close as possible. I closed that door on day one. I said, I have no interest in an ongoing role with the organization. And um, I am here. If you need me, feel free to call but I will not be involved in the organization in an ongoing way because I did not want to be the ghost of Christmas past that haunted my successor, (laughs) whether it was Eliza or someone else. So I made sure that there was no possibility I would be pulled into such a role. I find um, when a founder remains in some formal role with the organization, whether it's as a board member or a staff member or a quasi-staff member, What they usually are doing is they're ceding responsibility but retaining authority. And that's a horrible situation for a successor to be in where you have all the responsibility of running the organization, but the real authority is still vested in someone else. Um, You know, I know one executive director who was in that situation where the founder went on to the board of the organization. The organization was having some financial difficulties, and the executive director went through a very long process of making some strategic choices, which part of which included goring the sacred cow of the founder. And the founder basically at the next board meeting said, we're not going to pass your budget. And they didn't pass the ED's budget um, because the founder didn't want it. Even though the founder was not the one now responsible, the founder still had all the authority in the organization. So I I had seen that type of thing happen, and I said, I'm not going to be that guy. Then a complete fluke of things happened that I think made it work. I was appointed to be an assistant secretary in the U.S. Department of Education under President Obama shortly after I left GLSEN. And there is a lobbyist rule, which is really designed for defense contractors, but Mm -hmm. affects everyone, 
where you can have no official contact with your former employer for the first two years of your service in government. So I actually was legally prohibited from doing anything with Glisson. Um, and that made it absolutely clear that the organization was going to have to move on because even if I had second thoughts or the board had second thoughts, it was actually illegal for me to go back and be involved. Wow. That's actually to have to have a legitimate legal boundary is is a was a very good thing, I assume, because you must have had board members who were thinking to themselves, my goodness, our donors are going to think, where did Kevin go? Why did he leave? He's not he's not engaged in the organization. Is there some backstory here? I don't know. Now, I took time with our leading donors to actually explain to them what was going on before I left that I thought it was in the best interest of the organization that I not remain involved and that that was a vote of confidence in the strength of its leadership, not a statement of doubt. So we took a lot of care to, I spent a lot of time on the phone explaining to key donors um, and key allies that the reason why I would no longer be involved was because I had complete confidence in the organization's leadership, was not a vote of no confidence, but actually a vote of complete confidence. And so I think they were not troubled when they saw that I had moved on to a different role um, and had no longer was no longer involved because they said, well, Kevin told us that this is because he trusts the people leading the place. And if he's confident enough to walk away this definitively, they must actually be good. Did, uh, so I, the blog post that I did write on my blog at JoanGary.com with two R's, we um, also engaged Eliza Bayard in that conversation. And so I just want our listeners to know that uh, I can corroborate Kevin's story because of having talked to Eliza. So I just want you to know that this is not just the, the gospel according to the founder here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you are, you know, we, we've talked about this, the, 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 the founder syndrome, which you know, I think it, it's, I mean, I'm curious, is it, it feels like in many, many situations, it deserves that pejorative because founders don't know how to go. Board members won't let go of them. The comments I got on the blog post that I wrote, things like, I am living this nightmare. Thank you. Uh, here's another one. It's kind of a kind of a Bill Murray Groundhog Day kind of comment. Dear Lord, it's like a movie I keep reliving. <laughs> now here's one and i uh, so let's assume that you decided you wanted to, so you're you know an executive director of foundation <clears throat> would you take a job as an executive director of an organization where the founder was this is a, one of the comments the founder is on the board and also must be a small organization also my director of development would you take that job kevin jennings Absolutely not under any circumstances. No matter uh, how passionate you were about that organization's mission, right? Absolutely not, because, you know, I used that phrase earlier, ceding responsibility but retaining authority. That's what that founder is doing. Um, basically, they are still in charge. And so I think that's a, a disaster waiting to happen, and I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Yep. I do think that a lot of times people make choices to go into situations that they really should just actually opt out of. Any last pieces of advice for founders that are out there? Well, I'll tell you something that's a little counterintuitive and was over the objections of both my husband and my best friend. I left without another job. I uh, did not. I felt like 
I had to just walk away. And also, I'm a person who, when I am involved in something, I am 110%, and that I didn't feel I could be an effective executive director for the organization while looking for another job. Mm -hmm. And I think what holds a lot of founders back is the fear of like, oh my God, what am I going to do next? Will I ever find anything as meaningful as this? Will I ever find anything as passionate as this? At some point, you just have to say, I'm leaving now. And the old phrase, you know, once one door closes, another opens, turned out to be true for me. I think that's a line from The Sound of Music, isn't it, Kevin? Oh, well, gay man quoting a musical. There's a shock. Yeah. Um, And for me, it was actually six months before I got my new role in the administration. And I didn't doubt at any point still that I had made the right decision. And I think you have to have faith as the founder that, first of all, things are going to be okay. You know, the organization is not your life. Um, Charles de Gaulle once said, the graveyard is full of indispensable men. Um, And I think that it helped me also having had a sabbatical where I had a few months away and I realized that I was not Glisten and Glisten was not me. So give yourself a little trial run maybe. Take six weeks off or something and see how it feels. And that will be a good test for you. And if you feel like you absolutely have to go back, I think you need to interrogate why you're feeling that way. I suspect that if you've built the organization the right way, um, a lot of tension will leave your shoulders and you'll realize that leaving is a possibility. There's something else in this too, which is the three-letter word ego, right? Is that, you know, I've known you a long time, so I would certainly say that you have a healthy ego. <laughs> but it's you're you know, kind. <laughs> I don't think it's oversized, but uh, you know I have one too, so perhaps I have a bad frame of reference. Um, <laughs> but your identity wasn't intrinsically connected to Glisten in, on the inside, maybe on the outside. And I feel like you, at the age of forty-four, were sort of saw a path ahead of you that had new and interesting things. And God knows it has, actually. And I do believe that founders' egos are not held in check properly or they're not self-reflective enough to really understand that your ego can be gratified in a whole host of ways, but that your ego certainly can't be gratified if as a result of your being interwoven, your identity being interwoven with an organization you care deeply about, that it suffers as a result. Yeah, I think that for me, like I said, the sabbatical was actually a really important moment when um, I was doing some volunteer work and other stuff, and I realized, wow, I can find fulfillment and also continue to find a way to contribute to making the world a better place, um, even if I'm not at Glisten. So I would urge once again, founders should consider taking a break um, and experimenting with some other things that they care deeply about because I think they'll find that the the basic need of any nonprofit founder is to feel like you're making a difference in the world. Right. And the problem is sometimes that gets equated to I must be at this organization. But the reality is that's not true. Fair enough. Um, you can make a difference in the world in a variety of ways. And if you, I have started uh, two other nonprofits since I left Glisten, working on very, very different issues. Well, and you also, and you also run a foundation where you get to see 
you know, hundreds of grantees making all the difference in the world every day. So you, 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 you have that kind of perspective as well, which is really, really great. So we are actually out of time. Um, thank you so much for, um, for the chat and for the insights. I really believe that there are a lot of people who will benefit greatly from everything you had to say today. So thank you. And if I can ever be of help to anyone, all of our uh, emails are on the Arcus Foundation website. Feel free to email me as well. Excellent. So if you enjoyed the podcast, don't hesitate to check out our growing inventory of podcasts on iTunes. We're called Nonprofits Are Messy. Don't hesitate to shoot me an email at joan at joangary with two R's dot com. If you have suggestions about topics for upcoming podcasts, and if you are not already receiving my weekly insights, please go ahead on over to www.joangary.com and subscribe. We'd love to have you as part of the tribe. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.